Victor Davis Hanson, a classical scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and a farmer in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Dr. Hanson has published more than two dozen books, including A War Like No Other, The Definitive Account of the Peloponnesian Wars, and The Case for Trump, the paperback edition of which has just been published. Victor, welcome, and welcome everyone to Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson. Victor, let's start with your own experience. You live among farmers and ranchers. You yourself own 40 acres. What has the shutdown meant to the San Joaquin Valley? Well, you know, it's funny because we're the richest in terms of actual value of crops sold, about 40 different varieties in the, in the United States, in fact, per density in the world. And we're feeding right now, we meaning not me, but the people of this county. And right Fresno below county. me, Peter, there's a main thoroughfare from two rural fa uh, towns, Dinuba and Carruthers. There's a lot of chicken processing, almond processing, uh, chicken uh Beef, the Harris beef lot is right over here, and citrus, and it's just booming. I mean, it's people, I'm looking out the window right now, and there's two people out in my almond orchard working. So it hasn't stopped a bit because it's outdoor activity, and we're told that 97% of the transmissions of the virus are within doors. And then people feel, they do really feel a need, they have to keep working because the truckers and the and the processors and the packing houses and the farmers are, they feel they're needed. But if I go into these little local towns that are right, the one two miles behind me has a per capita income of $13,000, Selma. And it's been, it looks like a, you remember the neutron bomb of our college days? Sure. We right. dropped the bomb and the radiation destroyed everything without impairing the infrastructure. That's what it looks like. No restaurants. Uh, yeah, so the people in the barber shops, the restaurant, all of them have been wiped out. I will say that among a lot of the immigrant community, many of them here illegally, I admire their entrepreneurship because up and down this rural road, there are illegal daycare centers, barber shops, canteens. My neighbor right over here must have 30 cars a day. I shouldn't say that because I don't want him to be turned in, but he's cutting hair all day long. Oh, really? Yes. And so he may have another people, customer before this is over. This yes, I know it. If I had hair, I'd be his customer. But uh, I think Gavin Newsom's, at some point, I don't think what Newsom or Cuomo or Trump says will be the ultimate arbiter of whether we get back or not. It's where people feel confident enough to go out and book a flight, go to a restaurant, invite people over for dinner, et cetera, et cetera, until that confidence is restored. We Victor, Cal California return. itself, California itself, you've written in the last couple of weeks, you've written a couple of times on the Golden State. Let me quote you. On the eve of the epidemic, California seemed especially vulnerable, given the large influx of visitors from China, close quote. Yet California, you went on to note, has so far suffered a relatively low death rate, even a relatively low infection rate as these antibody tests begin to come in by comparison with other large states. The only large state with a lower death rate per unit of population is Texas. California is much better off than New York, yeah. for example. What's going on? Do we know yet? I don't think we do. And I wrote a controversial article. I didn't come down necessarily on any one uh, exegesis. I just said, here were the parameters of the debate. People had said, well, maybe California's notorious bureaucracy. It's pretty bad. Anybody's gone to a California DMV. The testing right. was late or it was inaccurate. Or maybe there is some credence to this theory that warmer weather, it's going to be 91 here today. Uh, or maybe it could be that uh, Gavin Newsom on March 19th was the first to order a lockdown. But I mean, people three days later in New York and two days later in other states followed suit. Or it could be, and this is what got me into trouble, is that I might suggest that the January 21st official date of anybody in the United States getting the virus, and I think it was March 10th, I questioned that. And I said, when you had 15 to 20,000 people coming from China, and of that number, people had estimated 3,000 a day to Los Angeles, but maybe 6,000 at San Diego, San Jose, uh, SFO and LAX on direct flights, including more than 25 flights from Wuhan, 
in November, December, and January before the cutoff. And then after the cutoff on directed flights from Europe for two weeks, it would be very naive to think out of that huge pool of anywhere from 700 to a million people, there wasn't somebody that was positive and that we would have, well, I didn't say we'd had herd immunity of 50 to 70%. I thought that the number of people that were infected was much higher than we thought. And what I meant by that was we were doing even better than the statistics because we were running as we are now about three out of a hundred, according to those who have test positive in the denominator versus the fatalities in the numerator. But when you look at the USC study and the Stanford researcher study, they suggest it, it could in fact be, uh, if you do the math, not three out of a hundred, but one or two per thousand. Right. And that's pretty stark. And that suggests to me that there is, I'm not going to say it's 15 or 20%. 15 was found in New York uh, today, 15 yes. in Germany, but let's see what been the, infected. 15%. Yeah, I think there's more people that had it and we're finding out that it's not quite as lethal. And California is not quite, it's the 10th dense, most dense state in the union. So it's not scattered like Wyoming, but we're not like New York. And we don't have, people don't use the subway as much. And we have, I think, there's a lot of studies that suggest warmer weather, it's not going to kill the virus, but if you had a choice, you'd rather have the virus in a warmer climate because when it's out of the body on the surface or in the air, it's not going to live as long. So all right. of those, I think, incrementally help explain what's going on. But we're surely not going to get his March 19th letter, you remember, to Donald Trump and CDC, et cetera, that we were going to have 25 million cases and we were going to have at the Gavin Newsom said that. Yeah. And we at right. the lethality rate of 3% at the time, that would have given us almost 800 to a million deaths. He said that would be in eight weeks. We're only three weeks away from a million deaths, and we're having about 1,500, 1,400 deaths. Right. Right. Again, to quote a column that you wrote recently, th moving from California to the nation now, throwing some 20 million people out of work. Since you wrote that, the number has gone up to 22, I believe, 22 million people out of work, destroying trillions in liquidity, sending the GDP into depression like descendants and shutting up over 100 million people in their homes is having health consequences that could ripple out far more so than from the virus itself, close quote. Explain that, Victor. I don't think we've even scratched the surface, Peter, because there are, I just went to a uh, a doctor this morning, a cardiologist, and, and they don't have any patients there. And then he referred me to as many referrals as he could cram in because they don't have any patients. And what I'm getting at is there are hundreds of thousands of Californians who need scans, they need procedures, they need diagnostic tests, they need quote-unquote optional surgeries right. in cardiology, oncology, diseases, chronic conditions, lupus, arthritis, all of that. They're not getting it. We're, we know from the 2008 meltdown that the suicide rate went way up as unemployment right. went up. We know that uh, spousal and familial abuse increases when people are locked within, a, we know anxieties. And when you add six or seven trillion dollars of destroyed liquidity and GDP, that that's going to have an effect on people's lives. So, and we're at so a, Victor, we're at a, go ahead. Are you satisfied You've dipped into the White House briefings that have been taking place. The president speaks and then he takes questions. But then there are other officials, Dr. B-R-I-X, B-I-R-X, Dr. Burks, yes. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Yes. Uh, Dr. Fauci, other public health officials have spoken. I myself keep waiting. Public policy, forming public policy, you learn this in any Kennedy school, any school of public policy. It's all about trade-offs. The fundamental form of analysis is cost-benefit analysis. And I have not heard them once refer to the costs that you just outlined. Well, they that can't, is to Peter. Say, why not? Because the, the left, the progressive left, has prepped the battlefield and given the narrative to Trump that if it's worth to save one life, right. then you can't, you're, you're, he's, he thinks in a political sense, he's not going to be able to get the country back if 
we get a hot spot, and then the New York Times has this picture, this picture, this picture with a caption, right. Trump, dead, Trump. And so he's airing, but you're quite right. What he should be doing is, at every one of these press conferences, he should have Mnuchin, he should have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he should have some type of Federal Reserve officer, and then he should have Fauci and Burks, and they should say, these are the medical opinions, this is these national security threats, because after all, China and Iran are doing all sorts of strange things right now. And this is the economic, and I've got to take all of these streams of input and synthesize them and give you an answer. That's what he should be doing. But the medical community has established this premise that unlike any other contagion in our history, that we have certain rules now that we've never had before. When we have the flu, like 2017, 60 million people were estimated, but we didn't just say, well, the denominator to determine the lethality will only be determined by the number of those who test positive for the flu. Right. Go to your doctor, that would be a quarter million. And then we know that somewhere around 61,000 died, so therefore, wow, one of 10 people died of the flu, let's shut down the country. But we're doing that with this virus because it's a corona, not an influenza strain. We know that it came from China. We know it's an election year. We know Donald Trump is widely hated by his opponents. And it, it turned out to be a perfect storm. It was just too many, you know, straws on a camel's back to bear. And we ended up with this utter hysteria and panic. Well, okay, to, let me see if I can tease you into getting yourself into trouble again. Do you oppose the shutdown as it has taken place so far? I oppose... Uh, the lockdown after pretty much next week. Got it. Because, and then I do support, based on what you see with, say, the Swedish model or the Japanese model. Explain I, I that support, for a moment. The Swedish, yes. but in both of those cases, they have uh, the Swedish model. People are social distancing. Uh, older people, people with underlying conditions, are being told to stay home and self-isolate. But the economy, schooling. Uh, restaurants yeah. remain open. Like what Japan is a little bit different, but essentially Japan also has not shut down its entire economy. Yes. And they tend to be doing probably not quite as good as Germany, but nobody ever does as good as Germany in most things. And then not as well, I mean, better than places that are completely shut down like France or Spain or Italy or the UK. And then the second thing that the Stanford researchers and the USC researchers have also pointed out that for people who are not my age, I'm 66, but under 60 and don't have a chronic health condition, it's likely that about 99.9% .9 of them, one out of a thousand will die, but the other 99.9 .9 will live. And right. therefore they could be going out into the general population and acquiring herd immunity and right. then that would actually protect the people that are shut in because when they go out after this lockdown is over, people that were younger have weathered disease with either mild or no symptoms, and then they're not going to infect the, the vulnerable people. But what we're doing now is we're putting generations within the same house. Right. People do go out to shop and we're making people more vulnerable because it's easier to transmit the virus within closed quarters and we're not developing the level of immunity that will be necessary to get us to the vaccination match, you know, promised land. Victor, you have, I hope once all this is over, in my own mind, I've been saving this for late summer when the campaign is beginning to get underway in earnest. I want to do a whole show devoted on your new paperback edition of the case for Trump to which you've added new material. But let me just ask right now, Donald Trump's comportment as national leader in this crisis strengthens or weakens the case for Trump? Well, I think it strengthens the book's theme. I don't know, because the case for Trump wasn't Trump is infallible, but this is why people voted for him. It was and, really the case for the people who voted for Trump. Yes, or, the, or trying to explain to other people who did not why he won and why right. he has not imploded or why he wasn't a left winger or why he wasn't a nutty right winger or why he wasn't incompetent. Because what two things are happening he did, and it's typical Trump, what Trump says and what Trump does are two different things. Right. So if you look at right now, 
the, the travel ban was supposedly called xenophobic and racist by everybody from CNN to the Chinese Communist Party to Joe Biden. Everybody now who said that is not willing to have the intellectual integrity to say, I was right, and you've got to lift that ban right now. They're welcome to try it, but they don't say a word. So they agree with it. And then we know that after that, three weeks in the case of Nancy Pelosi, she said, come to Chinatown and hug people. We know that Blasio and Cuomo did something analogous. So that was a brilliant move, and it stopped 15 to 20,000 people coming in. We also know that nobody is saying, I wish we had open borders with Mexico and we had more caravans like last summer. Nobody's right. saying that. So that was, right. that was good. They're also saying, we like the idea that the president has the ability to stop travel from any country that cannot guarantee passport control. That was, that was good. We like the idea the president said, I'm not, if you want to have an off-label use, and he did that in 2018 with end-of-life uh, desperation drugs, so to speak, off-label uses. So that was a precursor for hydroxychloroquine. So all right. of that's been very good. And he got all of those executives in. And we're going to have ventilators coming out of our ears pretty soon. We're probably going to supply the world with ventilators because of World War II, like, ramping up. Yes. But where he, I think, and I've said this in the book, is sort of a tragic hero, is that he gets in these press conferences and it's basically the New York, Washington, East Coast Corridor media trying to get, get him and bait him. And this is a guy who was apprentice star for 11 years. So he loves the repartee. Yes. And he goes back and forth and he bests them and he beats them. And he, he scores these tactical victories. But strategically, it explains why his ratings have gone down a little bit. Because what happens, they take a snippet here and a snippet here and they run it on network news, CBS, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, and they take it out of context, and he looks like he's petty, and he's narcissistic. Right. So I think he would be much better, and you, you hinted at it, to come out and say, this is all that we've done. Here's Fauci, here's Burks, here's Mnuchin, here are the military people, go to it, and cut the whole thing down from two hours or an hour to 25 minutes. All right. Plague in the ancient world, Victor. Yes. You wrote recently, I'm going to quote you, the unknown plague at Athens, 430 to 429 BC, killed one quarter of the Athenian population during the Peloponnesian War, wrecking the social structure of the city in 542 AD. During a virulent bubonic plague epidemic, millions perished throughout the Byzantine Empire. We could add the Black Death of the 14th century that killed between 30 and 60% of the population of Europe. Incidentally, as I understand it, it is now believed that that Black Death originated in Central Asia. Who knows? Wuhan, uh, the Wuhan of the day. Um, the, so the point here is that, that you make plagues, pandemics, these have represented an expected feature of human life as recently as a century ago when we had the yeah. influenza of 1918. Should we have seen this one coming? We, meaning the human species, should have. We kind of got in the idea that, unlike, I don't know what the Athenian plague is. There's a good case for typhus or even typhoid, maybe smallpox. I doubt smallpox. And we know that the Constantinople Byzantine plague was black plague, as was oh, we the know 14th, that. 14th century bubonic plague that really wiped out Italy and a lot of the Mediterranean. So we had the idea that these were all biblical plagues like, and they were dangerous. They were typhoid Mary in Chicago or yellow fever with General Washington, but they were the results of poor sanitation, poor drinking water, sewage disposal, the pre-vaccination, pre-antibiotic, pre-viral, and that we had transcended that. Right. Nobody ever said humans and animals are in a constant challenge and response technique and human nature being what it is, the more knowledge you gain, that can help you defeat natural phenomena, the more dangerous somebody's going to use it or be lax about it. Putting a viral four, level four uh, laboratory in the hands of the Chinese is like giving a firecracker to a five-year-old because they had not had the institutional checks and balance, the 70 to 80, 100-year history of two steps forward, one step back in viral research. So all we have done is substituted the, the 19th century problems of sewage 
and drinking water for the 21st postmodern problems of viral safety in an antiseptic environment. So I've, you have argued before to me and in many of your books that war is a permanent part of the human condition and it is simply modern hubris to suppose, as so many people seem to suppose in the 20s, that the League of Nations would stop war or that the First World War would be in the, the war to end all wars. War was a permanent aspect of human life. So if we learn anything deep from this virus, is it that the virus is teaching us something about, is it that the virus is another affront to modern day hubris? This I think is it part is. of the human condition. Yeah. I think, uh, especially in the Obama years, we had this idea of there's a trajectory of the arc of history. Remember the moral yes, arc of yes, it's bending yes. and the more, and that it was a predeterminist. We got that a little bit with Paul Kennedy, the rise and fall of the great powers. We got it with Francis Fukuyama, end of history. There was this idea that as we could become more free and democratic and more technologically adept, and we have more Facebook, Google, Apple, we're, and, and Bill Gates working for us and all that, we're getting morally and economically and financially at a higher plane and we're all going up here. And there's no evidence necessarily to say that history always goes in a linear progression. It's cyclical. Maybe the cycles get better as we go, but I'm not sure. I think if I lost a $5 bill in my hometown today, I would have a less, like, less, less likely opportunity of getting it back than 50 years ago or 200 years ago when it first America was first founded. So I'm not sure that with material progress, you don't get moral regress. And the other thing is that uh, I think it's very important that we don't worship science on this altar. If you and I had talked about ulcers 30 years ago, we would say, wow, there's this, all this new study that stress does it and aspirin. And if we did it 20 years ago, we'd say, wow, there's this new thing called H. pylori and Advil will, will add to it. We don't know what the next exegesis will be. I was looking at two drugs that my dad thought were wonder drugs. He's passed away 20 years ago. And one was Flomax and the other was uh, Zantec. And I just saw the other day that both of them now have serious side effects. And they're, they're even talking about phasing both of them out. And what I'm getting at is not that they weren't good drugs because they really helped him, but there's not gonna ever be something that's a magic bullet, that science is an evolutionary process that has a bad and a worse choice. But we want immediate and instant perfection. So if you tell somebody today, especially in the coastal corridors, the elite global, communities, that if you're not 60, 60 and you're in pretty good health, you've got a 99.9 .9 chance of not dying from this virus. They're going to tell you, I can't take the risk because one in a thousand is not good enough for me because I'm a blank, blank, blank. I'm a financier. I'm a college administrator. I'm this. I'm a media elite. And the world is so perfect. I'm not going to risk it. And more importantly, they're shielded, and this is the central truth of this entire epidemic. Who are the heroes of this epidemic? I haven't called my financial planner. I really haven't. I am not helped any at all by the Stanford Vice Provost of Diversity and Inclusion. It doesn't matter. I don't think that uh, Rachel Maddow is going to save the United States. You know who is? Hilario no, Lopez right now out there working in the almonds or Joe Smith with a gut driving all night to Costco to get toilet paper there by 6 a.m. Or the guy that you call when your freezer comes, blows up and you need food and he shows up from Home Depot and he doesn't have a mask on and you say, oh my God, he doesn't have a mask on because he's breathing hard and he's trying to get you a new freezer. So I think that's been good. It really tells us that the essentials of life never change. They're food, fuel, health, housing. And if you can't get food, you can't go to a food market and you can't go to Home Depot to fix something and you can't uh, get fuel for your heating and, and you're not gonna let it live. You can deal, deal without the other stuff, but there are people in the shadows that we neglected. We thought they were global losers or they didn't make it. But I was thinking the other day, I was reading Richard III 
just for the heck of it again. And I thought, this must be a financial planner when his circuit breaker goes out or his baffle on his toilet doesn't work. He'll say, handyman, handyman, my kingdom for a handyman. Because he's helpless, most of them. Right, right. Victor I'm not China. trying to pick on financial planners. I like them. They're very brilliant people. But right now, I'd rather have a guy who's a handyman. Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week. This is China. Holman Jenkins. On January 7th, President Xi, we now know this, President Xi gave a secret speech on the Wuhan outbreak. China's government issued no public warning. The Wuhan city government permitted a gargantuan banquet for 40,000 families on January 18th. Wuhan, bigger than any American city at 11 million inhabitants, was a major rail hub inside China and through its international airport exported thousands of travelers a day to the world. Xi Jinping bears unique responsibility for a global pandemic that will end up killing millions, close quote. Victor? Well, I would add to his list, the key one for me is January 23rd, when he locked down all travel to and from Wuhan to every Chinese city in his country. And he was perfectly willing for people he thought were infected or could be infected that posed a danger to Chinese. He was perfectly willing to have them get on a direct flight to San Francisco or LAX or Bern or Paris. And he was also perfectly willing to unleash the Chinese military propaganda and Communist Party megaphones, who said that it was racist and homophobic to have a travel ban seven days after he did. Right. And, we were, and we were the beneficiaries of another 150,000 visitors from ground zero of the plague. And so I thought to myself, when I heard all this, I said, well, that's the most racist thing in the world, to say that my people who are Chinese have to be protected but all those other people in the world, that's, that's their problem. And then to say that you're racist for not allowing people from my country to come and possibly infect you in a way that I wouldn't let them ever go to infect each other. And, so, and that was effective. And so I think what happened is I'm not a conspiracy theorist who think that the virus was necessarily engineered. I don't think it was deliberate. I think it's more likely that they were way over their head in the level of complexity they were researching versus the level of security they could master. The virus got out, they tried to stop it, they tried to hide it because they thought it would hurt their global brand. And at some point, and those are the dates that you recited, somebody said to Chi, you know what, this thing is out. We can't stop it, you can't put the bottle, the cork in the bottle, and it's gonna hurt us, so let's just let the whole thing go to hell. In other words, if we're going to get hurt, there's, let's not let a crisis go to waste. I say that because almost immediately, they didn't warn us. Their megaphone at the World Health Organization mouthed their platitudes and fooled people and people died. But more importantly, what has China been doing? They had a propaganda campaign to bring, blame us, even though we helped pay for that damn uh, laboratory. And then they went right out to the Spratly Islands, South China Sea, and started renaming islands so that people during the panic would know that they're theirs. Then there were reports that they started to resume uh, low yield or no yield nuclear testing, which is outlawed. And uh, then they started cracking down on Hong Kong. And then there were stories that they were going to ignore uh, international outcry about the re-education camps and maybe use Wiggers to go out and do manual labor. So what they've shown empirically is that they're taking advantage of the crisis. And they feel, and they haven't told us how many people have died or uh, how many cases they've had. I think it's been the last four weeks. And we're stupid enough, we, the the Western world, that when we look at John Hopkins or world meters, we list China there with this frozen figure. And then we go over and we look at deaths per million or deaths per cases, fatality per cases. And then these idiots get on cable news and say, we're not doing as well as China. China, how could they be doing? And it's like saying, wow, you know, in 1939, Hitler's done a lot better job with uh, the people who have... Uh, Mental, mental problems or they have uh, cerebral palsy because they're not, they, the hospitals are empty of them. Well, he killed them all. 
Right. And I'm not saying they killed people with the virus, although they may have, but my God, they understand our mind better than we do. They're the most brilliant propagandists I've ever seen and deal in their dealings with the Western liberal mindset. Victor, is, is it too late to talk about managing the relationship with China? Has a new Cold War begun? <laughs> I think John Kerry said just that, didn't he? We have yeah, to manage the relationship with China. Well, I think there was a Cold War going on, and I'm hoping it will stay at a Cold War. Where they're going to, what's going to be interesting is uh, China, if you look at their strategy in the Communist Party Congresses, it was to brag and humiliate us in a tactical sense, but strategically not to get us get in a war with us. After all, we got 6,000 nuclear weapons, and we have a sophisticated missile defense system, and their only military threat to us is when we get close to them, or cyber. All of their technology is appropriated from us. They may master us in 10 or 12 years, but they're not quite there. And they have some real problems with a sophisticated Japan on its borders, a sophisticated South Korea on its borders, a sophisticated Australia on its borders, uh, a huge India that has border disputes, it doesn't like them, and who knows about Russia. So what I'm getting at is they were not Taiwan in a- Hong Kong? Taiwan and Hong Kong are a problem. Taiwan and Hong Kong. Hong Kong has is, is done very well. And so I think what they're thinking is, uh-oh, this virus preempted what we wanted to do, but it made us, sort of, it's sort of like Hitler saying, uh, well, the, the general's telling Hitler, you might have won Poland, but we were three years away when we wanted this war. It was too right. early. Or the Japanese right. telling uh, Yamamoto, I wish you had held off for two years. So I think that China would have preferred what this estrangement another decade from now, because they're not I ready see. for it. So an estrangement, what, here's the parallel that comes to my mind. It, well, maybe it's a parallel. Let me just put it in the form of a question. Reagan takes office after a decade, a dozen years of detente. And the public opinion polls show that the American people have warmed yeah, they to did. the Soviet Union during that period. Of course they did. There was Richard Nixon kissing Brezhnev on both cheeks when Brezhnev visited. And then the Soviets shot down Korean airliner 007. And the polling changed overnight. Nothing that Reagan did, although, of course, we know Reagan was in favor. He ran a campaign on standing up to the Soviets. But the Soviets showed there was a moment when everyone could see what kind of regime it really was. And it feels to me as though that kind of inflection point in public, I don't even want to call it public opinion, but in actual realistic perception on the part of ordinary Americans about what China really is, may now have happened with this virus. Am I being melodramatic here? No, I don't think you are. I think we're, we ourselves are evolving and people are starting to blame the Chinese. But remember, the difference is that this media, which the Liberal Shorenstein Media Center at Harvard said was 93% negative to the presidency, has been basically regurgitating Chinese talking points and that they've said to us to were blue in the face that China is blaming, is being blamed by Trump to deflect from his own culpability. That's what they're professional. So they're not getting, uh, we're not getting through our media a dispassionate, disinterested view of what the threat China I don't think that's going to be sustainable. Because You know why I don't? Because the modern left worships at the altar of the European Union. And they mm. feel that we want to be where the EU is in, in 10 years. And uh, the EU is sick of China. Not just Italy and Spain, as you would, but even Germany. There was a German uh, editorial blame. I mean, far more uh, accusatory of China than anything I've seen in the American press because they have a much thinner margin of error in terms of fuel supplies, right. GDP, unemployment, and they're very angry. And, they're and so are the former Commonwealth countries like Canada or Australia, and even countries like Mexico are, are, are furious. And so China is not, it's going to be roundly condemned the worldwide. India is attacking it. The Belt and Road uh, client countries are saying, we're not going to pay you back. Africa especially. 
And so I don't see that that propaganda is going to work indefinitely. And the other thing is uh, the left wasn't too worried about China's military domination or economic. They were, to the degree they were worried, and they weren't compromised, they, they focused on human rights violations. And, and they've got a whole potpourri of these. When you have sci a, a researcher who just disappears, or data that's destroyed, or people that were deliberately exposed, that makes the left a little bit more sensitive to calling that out. But everybody has their, their pet Chinese complaint, military, economic, financial. And uh, what I'm worried most about, Peter, is not that we're gonna decouple, because I think we are, but there's two things that really worry me. One is the process of decoupling. Right. It's sort of like a, a divorce you read about that they're all happy after it's over. They get along. But during the process, both sides lie and connive. And we're not lying and conniving. It's just going to, I think the Chinese are not going to freeze up. I mean, allow frozen bank accounts to be unfrozen. I think they're not going to compensate companies for their factories or their investments or uh, any of the, mount, the money that's stuck over there in China. And the right. second thing is, yes, we got to have pharmaceuticals. Yes, we have to have rare earth rest. We have military technology. Yes, medical supplies. But we have spent a large portion percentage of our K through 12 and our undergraduate experience and our professional schools and what the Chinese would call fluff, right. social science dash studies courses. And we're not turning out the STEM student or the math and engineering people that we need to get a grip on these key. And they still gender studies instead people. of calculus. Yeah. And it's really tr tragic because the top minds of these disciplines that create the new research and the new breakthroughs are all American. But the, the, the middle level who absorb it and take it back to China, there's far more of them than American students studying that stuff. Right. I guess if I wanted to be really cruel, I would say and get back on a vice provost of inclusion that that might sound very well in theory, but for every provost of diversity and inclusion, we could probably hire three professors of electrical engineering and endow them. Right. And then we could, we could, we could prepare us. I don't think we're prepared yet to be autonomous in the areas we need to be. And we're going to have to be very careful because uh, China has a hold over those supply chains and we have to find a way out. And that's why Pete Trump gets well, so, so much Victor, criticism. That, that, let me just name three, three ways in which China differs from the Soviet Union to China's advantage. Three ways that complicate any effort to draw lines between us and them. And one, of course, is the, the supply chains. Yeah. Take, take your grocery cart down aisle after aisle at Walmart. That stuff's made in China. Yeah. Get a, if we're talking about a virus, but get a respiratory tract infect, get a bacterial infection and take a Z-pack, the antibiotics come from China. Yeah. They make stuff on which we have come to rely. One. Two, they have something the Soviets never had, cash, and lots of it. And as you well know, up and down the valley where I'm seated, you're in a different valley, you're in the Central Valley, I'm in Silicon Valley, the Chinese have investments in company after company after company. I don't, I just don't know how you unwind those. And then the third point, you mentioned this in a column just the other day, is it smart, I'm quoting you, is it smart to have some 360,000 yeah. Chinese students enrolled in US colleges? There were never anything like that in numbers from the Soviet Union. A, a token physicist would study for six months at MIT and then go back to Moscow State. How, how do you, let's, let's, let's posit that we're awake to the danger right now in a way that we never have before. How on earth do we untangle all of this? It's gonna be very difficult and I'd add a fourth to your that even frightens me more and that is people had no problem demonizing Russia. They were called the alt-right, the orthodox crazies, the Rasputin-like country, white. And what China has done is they have grafted 
their monolithic, racist, xenophobic society that systematically puts people in re-education camps for their religion or doesn't allow Africans to go into a McDonald's in Beijing. Right. And they've transmogrified themselves as part of the affirmative action, identity politics, other in the United States. And it's insidious. So I write an article to the effect that I'm worried about that 360,000 student body, because even if one or 2% were operatives of the Chinese Communist Party, that's a large number, 300, uh, 3,000. And then I'm also worried, why are we gouging that group for pay 10% above real cost to subsidize these universities at a time when Americans have $1.6 trillion in collective student debt? So I write this. Immediately, Slate comes out and attacks me. And here's how insidious it is. She says that was racist uh, for mentioning the Chinese students. But get this, Slate itself, her own magazine, she didn't even know it. Six months earlier, had written an article calling this sinister because they had done some research and said that most of the 360 thousand Chinese students were not representative of the 1.4 billion Chinese, but the word that they used were the princelings. They were the princelings of crooked provincial officials and Chinese communist uh, elite that were sending their kids over here to master American culture on the premise that we and our arrogance and hubris would think, oh wow, they came over here, they saw rap music, they wore jeans, they had the liberal atmosphere of the college landscape. They love us. We've corrupted them. Ha ha. And no, they get developed contempt for us, mastered our lingo. Notice how they use that word conspiracy theory even better than right. the left does. And they're, so they have become immune from criticism by playing a traditional postmodern American victim. And you dare criticize them and you're called racist and xenophobic. And that's, that's, there's no, no accident that Joe Biden and the Central Communist Party use the exact same adjectives of the travel ban. Racist and xenophobic. Victor, some last questions here. Before the coronavirus, the conventional wisdom about Donald Trump's re-election campaign was that he would have two planks, two big claims. One was a roaring economy, lowest unemployment in some cases, lowest un African-American unemployment since records began to be kept, lowest unemployment. And the other was that the Democrats had moved so far to the left that they were all but socialist. Put term it any way you want to, but big government to the nth degree. And now here we sit just weeks later, the economy is dead. I saw a, a, an estimate from one of the analysts in New York that GDP would be down at an annual rate this quarter of 25%. And as you noted, more than 20 million people are out of work. All right, so that big claim is gone. It's just not true anymore. It may, may not be his fault. I, you and I would certainly argue it isn't his fault, but that he can't make that argument anymore. And then every Republican in the Senate voted for a $2.2 trillion bailout package. And you know, those are numbers as, that are in the range of what Bernie Sanders was talking about for healthcare or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about as a down payment on the Green New Deal. So suddenly Republicans are signing up to vast expansions of government spending. I, he, can't call, he can't accuse the Democrats of, of, the, of socialism in the same way that he was able to. So the question is, what does he run on? Here's the way Walter Russell Mead argued in the Wall Street Journal, this is a couple of days ago, this week. With the economy in shambles and the pandemic ravaging the country, making the election a referendum on China is perhaps Mr. Trump's only chance to extend his White House tenure, close quote. Victor? Well, he has two chances, but you're absolutely right because whether it was fair or or whether it was moral or ethical, we knew given this present status of the Progressive Party that this crisis was going to be interpreted as 
being able to do something that Robert Mueller and Adam Schiff and Gerald Nadler could not, and that is destroy the Trump presidency, or at least, and and everything is weaponized. So they've created, as you say, this lose-lose paradox. If Trump on May 1st unlocks the, the economy and we go back to a partial normality, then if something breaks out in Louisiana and we have a hotspot, then Trump put money over lives and he killed us and he's got blood on his hands. If on the other hand, nothing happens or things will happen, but more or less it was a wise thing to follow the Swedish model. That economy, it's going to be a real question whether it's going to recover. And so it's going to be the Democrats are running against Herbert Hoover, who ruined the economy and put you out of work. So he's going to lose either way. So how does he get reelected? There's only two chances, as I see it. One is he's going to have to change the narrative and say, I war- and get clips and say, people, I warned you about Chinese perfidy. I warned you about their mercantile system. I warned you they couldn't be trusted. I warned you that they were causing trouble all over the world. And this is the, I had a travel ban early on. You could, and that's Walter Russell Mead's right. But there's another issue that he didn't mention. Donald Trump is not running on a popularity contest. It is true that the Democrats are going to try to have on the ballot uh, Donald Trump versus the disaster of the coronavirus. Right. In other words, they're running the coronavirus against him, but that's not going to be viable. They're running Joe Biden against him. So Joe Biden was worn out after a year of campaigning. So the Democratic narrative was we're going to go put good old Joe from Scranton in a comfortable fireside environment, and he's going to do fireside chats like FDR. Every day he's going to voice some words of wisdom, unite us, let's have the war production board, let's do this, and it's going to be a great situation. Meanwhile, he's promised us a diversity vice president, and people would be traipsing in, and he would be interviewing people of color and all, and this would be wonderful. You, And what happened? No sooner did that narrative start than and I'm trying to be as nice as I can because we're all going to be 77, but hopefully not quite 77 in the way that don't, that Joe Biden is. I'd rather be 77 the way that Bernie Sanders has been in the sense that he's much more hailed. But the point is, he thought he could be extemporaneous. It didn't work. So then they said, use the teleprompter. It didn't work. And then they said, use both. Neither worked. And then they said, don't even get on TV. And it was almost as if, like, whatever is ailing him is not progressing in our arithmetic rate. It's geometric. And the more rest and the more relaxation he gets, the worse he he performs. So what we've had now is this really Orwellian situation where it's like the 1944 election when everybody knew that FDR would not be able to perform. And whoever the vice president was, and it was Henry Wallace, a socialist, was going to be president. And so what happened is they thought, oh my gosh, we got to get this guy off the ticket. And they did at the convention and, and put on Harry Truman. And of course that happened to be, he was dead. And th- I'm not saying, suggesting that Joe Biden is dead, but what, we, what we're witnessing now is if we just take away the veil, there is an audition for the next, what they think will be president of the United States. And so everybody is trying to say, Joe Biden is not capable of running an effective campaign. He will not be an effective president. So we'll appoint our cabinet in advance, have them spread out and do the campaigning. And then we have to get a vice president that we can all agree on could do the job. But yet he's already boxed himself in. They seem, for some reason, to be enamored with Andrew Cuomo, although he's he's reigning over a state that has the worst fatality to caseload almost in the world. And yet they want him on that ticket, and yet they can't put him on the ticket because he didn't campaign, and he's not a woman or minority or both. And so they've got a lot of problems. And I think that's Trump's greatest greatest, uh, asset right now. If she would take the the post, would Michelle Obama transform Joe Biden's chance? Would she reassemble the the Obama coalition and just defeat Trump in a landslide? Uh... Well, she would be, there's two things that we don't know. Her argument would be that even though you may be sexist voter, 
I don't really care because wink and nod, Barack's coming back for 16, he'll have a 16-year term. That's what the subtext would be. But the other thing is, why does everybody like Michelle Obama? Why is she polled so high? Why does her memoir? It's because she's not Michelle Obama. The real Michelle Obama appeared in 2008 the way she always was. And what did she do? She came out and said she had never been proud of this country. She said this is a darn right mean country. She said they always raise the bar on people. This is a woman who was making the third of the million dollars playing off her. And then they said, Michelle, you're not running for everything. You're not a community organizer anymore. You're not the point man for the Chicago. Just shut the blank up and smile and be a first lady like Nancy Reagan and have a pet project. Nutrition. Try nutrition. And she did. And she turned out to be brilliant at it. And right. everybody loved Michelle. So she's going to go back now on the campaign trail and she's going to be Michelle Obama in 2008 and she's going to have to campaign and go into a big time wrestling repartee with Donald Trump. I don't think that's going to be the same Michelle that we have such fond memories of. I really don't. So there's some problems there. And I think uh, we'll see what happens, but it all hinges on right now, uh, Peter, two, two issues, and that is if the economy is snapped back in May, will it be in the ascendance in October? That is, after losing 10% GDP, will, it be, will the, the third quarter come out and say it was either zero or it was on the way up? And then people right. say, you know, Trump didn't cause that. It's restored. And are we going to see Joe Biden not be able to pronounce words, not know where he is? And people are going to say, you know, I like good old Joe, but I'd rather have Trump at least in, in you know, I'd rather have a compost mentes Trump than Biden. And we don't know the answer to that yet. And remember when you remember from your own political career, when George H.W. Bush in 1988 left the Republican convention, Mike Dukakis was 17 points ahead of him. 17 points. I remember that very well. And you remember that Ronald Reagan at one point was nine points behind Jimmy Carter. And then the economy took off and had a 12 month, seven 7% GDP increase and blue Carter out of the world. So anything can happen now. And we know one thing with Donald Trump is you cannot trust the polls because people feel right. that if they say to an anonymous caller that they're for Trump or an anonymous texter, that information will be aggregated in some nefarious way against them. So they're, they're not going to say, but he's right around now in the real clear politics he goes between 45 and 47. He won at 46 percent before okay. in 2016. Victor, last question. Three figures from the classical world. This is an exam. Get ready. <laughs> Three figures from the classical world. Augustus, after the assassination of, of Julius Caesar, the civil war of the triumvirate, Augustus restores order. Rome goes on to new heights. The Augustan age lasts over a century. Constantine, he moves the capital from Rome to Constantinople. The Roman Empire continues, but it's not the same. It's just not the same. It never achieves anything like its former morale and splendor. And Augustine, who from his vantage point in Hippo in North Africa, watches the sack of Rome and the definitive fall, Rome continues, but in some form, but he sees a definitive fall of the civilization that he loved. Something basic was over. Augustus who rebuilds and Rome goes on to new heights. Constantine who holds it together, but it's never the same. And Augustine who watches it fall. Which of those three figures best represents our present moment? Well, that, uh, that's a revealing question because it requires me to be to answer either what I would like to be true or what I think is true. You go ahead and give us both. You being you, I'll, I'll take as much of your mind as I can I'm weasel out and give you a third alternative. <laughs> and that's the Emperor Justinian after things had collapsed. Because I think a lot of ways America's collapsed. If I look at uh, a lot of indications of far, as far as uh, school test scores or harmony between people or red state, blue state divides 
or infrastructure, et cetera. But something like that had happened and everybody thought the Rome was over with, and it was in the West. And then that, this nut who spoke Latin became emperor, Justinian. And first of Wait, all, give, he- Give me the year roughly. It was right around uh, 530, 535, oh, so 540s. So then AD. So then what did he do? He's, he said, we've got to have all of Roman law over the last thousand years aggregated. He created the Justinian Code, which is the basis for modern European law. And then he said, we've got to restore the East, the emperor. So he sent out a brilliant guy named Belisarius, and they did reconstruct the Eastern Empire. And then he said, we've got to restore the West. And he almost did. He had all of North Africa. He had all of uh, the Balkans. He had most of Italy. He had parts of Spain. Of course, the bubonic plague that we talked about earlier wiped out 500,000. But my point is, then he said, we need a majestic testament to Christianity. And he built Hagia Sophia, Santa Sophia, St. Sophia Cathedral. It was the largest dome in the world until the St. Peter's at the Vatican. What I'm getting at, that lasted a thousand years. And it created a, it saved the Balkans and it saved Mediterranean culture. And it did, it saved uh, classical thought because in the West during the collapse, we wouldn't have had the manuscripts of Thucydides or Herodotus, a lot of Aristotle or Plato was saved. Not as the politically correct decision says in the Arabic world, only 2% were. Most of it was saved by Byzantine scholars and that was written, you know, they knew Greek. People in the West had forgotten. What I'm getting at is that I think what we're trying to do right now is say, go back to basics and say, you don't have a postmodern, sophisticated, cool, society as Hollywood depicts or TVs predict or popular music does or Snapchat or Twitter because that's not a good indication of how healthy you are. Every society has to go back to the existential foundations. Do we have fuel? I was really worried when we had to deal with corrupt Middle East regimes. Somebody Brilliant people figured out how to horizontally drill and frack and convinced us to do it. And we have less carbon emissions than we've ever had. And we're the world's largest producer of natural gas and oil. Somebody, and I'm looking out the window, and I know a lot of these people said, you know what? Just let us go. We can, we can take an almond orchard 30 years ago that produced 1,000 pounds, and we can produce 3,200 pounds with one tenth of the number of pesticides and one-fifth the amount of labor. And then somebody said, you know, our universities are sick. The undergraduate curriculums are sick, but don't let us contaminate science and math and engineering. And so I look at the ratings of universities in the world, the top 20, 17 are in the United States, Caltech, MIT, Stanford. And it's not because of their, you know, ethnic studies, women's studies, leisure studies, peace studies programs. It's what counts. They're good at it. They're, better, they're not just good at it. They're better than anybody in the world. I'm not a big fan of the people who run Silicon Valley, but I have enormous admiration for creating an American industry better than anything. And when I look at a lot of people in this country, about half the country are patriotic and they're competent. And what they've done is, in the last 20 years, they've made the United States the biggest and safest food producer, the biggest and safest energy producer, the biggest and best uh, professional education producer. And we have the still, even though it's been under assault, we have the best constitution in the world. And we're not, even for all of the tragic abortions and the childlessness and living in your basement till you're 30, the fertility rate is still higher than most of postmodern societies including China and South Korea's and Japan. So when I just look at, I say throughout history over 2,500 years, food, fuel, education, children, all of these things are important and we're doing pretty well in them. And we could be posed with the right leadership after this thing is over to be in a much stronger position. The countries that are really hurting right now, I think, are North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, Russia is being wiped out with this energy war and falling prices. And we're, 
for all of our self-criticism and bickering and he did that, no, you did that, we're in a much better position if we'll just be calm and remember we can say to ourselves, let's call this the Corona Project. We did the Manhattan Project, we did the B-29 Project, we did the Space Race Project, Man on the Moon Project, and let's just get a little bit more upbeat and we can do it rather than, oh my gosh, there's one out of a thousand chance I'm going to die, I can't go on. And I think we can make it. Victor Davis Hanson, the author of one book after another, most recently, The Case for Trump, speaking to us today from his ranch in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.